Tonight on Unsolved Mysteries, D.B. Cooper, Tragedy on the Tracks, and Memorabilia Gone Missing. So I'm pretty excited about this episode. I, I thought it was worth a rewatch this afternoon. Oh man, wasn't it? Uh, so should we should we get into it? Are you ready? Uh, yes. What's what's our intro? How, how do we intro again? Um, I introduce myself and I say, "Hi, I'm your co-host, Crystal." Okay. Okay. All right. I'm ready. Okay. Hi, I'm your co-host, Crystal. And I'm your other co-host, Robert. And this is Reenacted, an Unsolved Mysteries podcast. Or Rump for short? Uh, yeah, that's what, that's what we're going with. I, I'm, glad, I'm glad you allowed me to, to do that. So. Yeah, so hashtag Rump. <laughs> it's not what you think it is. <laughs> uh, so I th- actually, you know, before we get into the first segment, I you correctly pointed out to me earlier today that I I needed to make a correction on something I said uh, in the last last episode, and that is that there's no longer a Howard Johnson's Diner in Times Square. In fact, there hasn't been one since 2005. And uh, from the article I read in the Atlantic today, the last <laughs> one. The last one closed, I think, uh, in 2015 or 2016. So you can no longer visit a Howard Johnson Steiner. I'm sorry. I got what anybody's the, hopes up. The Lake George location is closed, too? Yeah, that's the, that's the Atlantic article I read. It was, like, the closing of... Oh, the man. Last Howard, the last Howard Yeah. I, 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 okay, because I would... Reading on Wikipedia, which, of course, admittedly, is not a, a good source, but, like... It had it's was only up to date to the that someone had bought the property it was on, but oh. I was still under the like it was still up in the air whether you know the the future of the well that's that's immensely sad because I was hoping that like our first meet and greet with whatever fans or stalkers this uh, podcast mm-hmm. might produce would be at a Howard Johnson's. Well, there's plenty of Howard Johnson hotels and motels that are left. There just aren't any more diners. So we can we could still do that. And we could get a conference room or something at, like, the Lake Chelan <laughs> Howard Johnson Inn. I, I don't think that exists. I probably just made it up. <laughs> Lake Chelan. I, Lake was, Ch- I don't I... know why Lake Chelan's... That's in Washington State. I don't know why that's why I picked... But you know what else has uh, happened in Washington State was our, our first segment. Oh, yes. This this is a very Pacific Northwesty uh, segment. Um, and the, the episode gets right into this. We don't even have an intro talking about the episode in general. Uh, we just immediately go to a, uh, uh, a, a reenactment of a man on the back stairwell of a 727 jumping off with uh, parachutes and a briefcase full of money. Um, This man, of course, is the legendary figure D.B. Cooper. Uh, 
um, who let me get my notes out. I'm actually looking at our, our, our stoner segment. Uh, <laughs> moment. Um, uh, this is a uh, mysterious legends episode, which I kind of at first was a little uh, sure whether this was the appropriate thing to mark it as, but considering ev- everything that happens and the ambiguity at the end, this, this really isn't a wanted uh, segment. This is definitely more of a, you know, mysterious, you know, what happened, you know, a lot of uh, question marks in the air. But yeah, on November 24th, 1971, in southwest Washington state, a uh, man dressed in a business suit with sunglasses and an attache case um, went did, accomplished a number of very amazing things that would stun uh, people in a modern setting. <laughs> uh, he goes up and purchases a ticket with twenty dollars cash for seven twenty seven. Um, there's like no. This is obviously such a pre terrorism 9-11 era that like he's able to walk with a, a, a case that contains something rather nefarious uh, with no TSA agents around, no screeners, no x-ray machines um, and he just gives his name as D.B. Cooper. They don't even check his ID. Um, though I found the reenactment a little strange because in the reenactment, like after conducting the transaction and purchasing his ticket, he then asks if it's a 2727, which as we'll see later in the episode, the, the critical thing about this is that it has that stairway at the back that can be opened. Um, uh, but it seems kind of strange that they, they depict in this reenactment that he just buys the ticket and then thinks to ask. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but I, that struck me as something of an oversight. Maybe like the the segment director wasn't coordinating with the reenacting second unit director or whatever. I th- I think that's likely. I think another possibility, if they were being trying to be super accurate, is that DB Cooper probably knew what type of plane flew back and forth between Portland and Seattle, and uh, so he was just confirming that the plane he was about to get on was the same type of plane that he had observed or knew about taking this route. Okay, I, I can buy that. Particularly, uh, as we'll see later, he kind of has um, uh, an insistence on uh, double-checking on stuff. So th- that seems plausible to me. Um, when the plane took off, he handed uh, a flight attendant named Florence uh, Schaffner. He handed her a note. And apparently, initially, she just ignored it. So I'm assuming that she was accustomed to, like, strange businessmen handing her obscene notes. I'm sure it was a daily occurrence for Flo. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure it was. (laughs) Let's hook up at the Howard Johnson's after we arrived (laughs) in Seattle. Um, But, yeah, but eventually he, he was able to insist that she read it. And the note essentially said something like, Miss, I have a bomb in my briefcase. I want you to sit next to me. I don't want any baloney, magic tricks, or psychological mumbo-jumbo. Which, you know, even then kind of probably is the very similar to many propositional notes she's received up to that point. 
Um, but he shows her the, in, the the interior of the case, which uh, apparently had you know dynamite sticks, wires, and batteries uh, all attached to each other. So, you know, I'm not a technical guy, but so I, you know, if someone showed me that, and I was on a plane, and they were threatening that it was a bomb. I, I'd be inclined to believe them. Um, and so his instructions are basically he wants. Uh, when they arrive in Seattle, he wants parachute some parachutes re- ready for him, like four parachutes, mm-hmm. um, as well as money in the sum of two hundred thousand dollars, which I'm sure at that point was worth a lot more than it is now. Um, I didn't bother to do the inflation figures or whatnot. But, <laughs> it's still, I mean, we, it's still a lot of money now. It's probably. N- I was thinking about this earlier, which was. Um, Sorry to jump ahead, but no. uh, law, law enforcement, when they get a call basically for extortion, the party that's being extorted, in this case the airline, um, gets to decide whether or not they want to pay out the sum of the extortion. And I was thinking there was probably some quick number crunching that went on uh, on the airline's end at corporate, which... I would assume a 727 and the life insurance of the crew members on board, as well as any lawsuits from the other passengers, <laughs> was probably well worth paying the $200,000. I mean, even even regarding inflation, yes, it was a lot of money back then, but it was probably a pittance compared to the trouble they'd be in if this guy blew up the plane. <laughs> I, I appreciate your cynical... Um... Or probably, I guess, realistic outlook on, on how this decision was reached. Um, I mean, yeah, it was fascinating to learn that, like, you know, the FBI was like, "Look, you can, uh, if you want, you can just pay the money. Like, that's an option to people who are subject to ransom demands. If you want, just give them the money." Um, uh, which is which is interesting. Yeah, I uh, didn't I didn't know that before the segment either. I assumed. I see well, yeah, like Mel Gibson comes in with every situation and tries to negotiate with every, but I, I guess you could just like get some cash and handle it who yourself. Are, who are the FBI agents in Ransom? I can't remember. I can't even. I mean, I don't even remember who played them. Uh, played them if they if they were characters. I mean, there was some sort of law enforcement guy who was always by the phone. Um, I'll have to look that up for our Wait, next episode. Mel Gibson was the dad, right? I was remembering him as the FBI agent. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, he was the dad. He was totally the dad. Oh, okay, sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I... I well, <laughs> well, the thing is, is, I didn't catch that, because when you're saying making offers or whatever, like, you know, the thing is, is he goes all rogue, and he's offering people money to hunt down the the guy, so I, I assume that's where you're going with... Yeah, um... Uh, but yeah, no, uh, apparently you can choose to just pay the ransom, which the airline, uh, opted to do. Um, and I, I don't, for me, one of the things I liked the most in this segment was in the reenactment, they chose to like depict D.B. Cooper as sort of having the temperament of a surly old man, who's, <laughs> you know, demanding that like, you know, who's very particular in his ordering at a restaurant. Like when when uh, I don't think it was Florence. I think it was the other flight attendant, Tina. 
mm-hmm. comes back to relay, you know, that everything's a go. Like he's being very particular, like you and you made sure to say two hundred thousand, right? I, I mean, and he says it like in this like surly old man way, as if you know this is someone who's in, making sure that like the waitress wrote down a large milk instead of a small. Um, but yeah, so they they get the uh, they arrive in Seattle. Um, the money. It, Every bill was photographed and recorded. Um, you know, the... And here's what I, I still am a little vague on. They say that the, the parachutes that were provided to him, like, the authorities were unaware that one of the parachutes was defective. How did they... If they were unaware of it, how did they know that it was defective after the fact? Uh, well, well, yeah, why do we know that it's defective? Right, yeah. It, I mean, it'd be one thing if they found D.B. Cooper's lifeless body on yeah. the, uh, to an unopened parachute. Yeah, that, that confused me as well. I didn't really understand what the point of throwing in that detail was because it just it didn't serve later I, in I the can't... story. Diane, it struck me again earlier this morning. There are two things that continue to trouble me, and I'm speaking now not only as an agent of the Bureau, but also as a human being. What really went on between Marilyn Monroe and the Kennedys? And who really pulled the trigger on JFK? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming that, like, maybe there were, you know, when they were collecting all the parachutes, there was one that had been found to be defective or something and had been stored away in some in their rush. They just threw that one in. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's kind of terrifying to think that there's like uh, a, a defective parachute, you know, already and looking like it's ready to be used and it's just laying around somewhere. Um, well, I'll save it for the end of the segment, but uh, obviously air travel has changed quite a bit since this time and probably because of db cooper <laughs> i mean i have to assume that a true, lot of true. protocols got enacted after this this all went down so yeah oh yeah the, the, there well there's there's a lot of differences like uh, in in the reenactment when they're just sitting there on the the runway <clears throat> you know the the passengers they um uh, they say that the passengers, you know, they're unaware of what's going on. They're confused, but uh, while they were annoyed, they were still calm, mm-hmm. which does not sound like anything that would be happening in today's um, in d- today's environment. Like I would assume this exact situation in a contemporary airline setting would involve like a near riot on the plane. Well, I guess you've never flown into LAX. <laughs> Okay. Um, cuz sometimes cuz sometimes you just you're you've landed and you just have to wait and I think everybody's pretty used to it. So, it doesn't necessarily I mean, if you're going uh, we don't actually get a time frame um yeah. with with uh how much time has passed between um them landing in Seattle and then arranging making all the arrangements to mm-hmm. to get the money on the plane. We don't we don't know how much time has passed, but I'm going to assume it's probably less than an hour that they're sitting on the tarmac. They probably want to handle this. They probably want to get the people off this plane as fast as they can without right. making it seem like that's what they're doing. So and, and they are able to do that. Cooper allows everyone but the uh the flight crew 
and one of the flight attendants to leave. And it was very strange that, like, the pilot, like, I guess he clearly f- favored Florence over Tina because he, he was like, get out, get out. And so Tina was the uh, unlucky one who was left behind to uh, serve the um, world's most surly old man hijacker. Um, but uh, so his D.B. Cooper wanted the plane to then fly from Seattle to Mexico City. And he stipulated that it had to be at 10,000 feet and at 200 miles per an hour, which I guess is conditions that would allow him to, you know, successfully parachute. And he was informed that if they if they were to fly in at, at in those conditions, that they'd have to stop to refuel. And Cooper agreed to do a refill in Reno, Nevada. So I assume that's where you're going to drop some sort of like ambient sound of slot machines uh, paying yeah. out. Yeah. yeah. But it's really good with cocaine in Las Vegas. <laughs> Excellent. Sounds good. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, so, uh, of course, Cooper didn't even arrive in Nevada because at some point during the flight, he bust open the, uh, uh, the those stairs in the back. And in a reenactment that uh, is very, to me, was very amusing. You know, he makes his way down on the steps and hops off. And I mean, this is clearly one of those situations where someone's trying to act like there's a lot of like natural conditions and whatnot. Like, you know, like how on star Trek when their ship gets hit and they all fall backwards, but really they're just on a completely static set. Like when he opens the door, like, yeah, I, I imagine that in an actual air flight situation, there'd be a lot more decompression going on. Um, um, I don't, I don't know enough to I, speculate, but I think that was probably part of the ten thousand feet stipulation. Oh, okay, yeah, no, you're right. That that's that's probably what's going happening there. Um, well, moving on from my ignorance of. Uh, atmosphere and pressure and decompression um so he jumps off and it's somewhere over southwest washington not too far from mount st helens and uh they this is really the last that anyone has definitely seen of cooper because that apparently a large white object was spotted in lake merwin so there was a lot of searching going on in the lake there, presumably looking for what was a, a parachute. And this gets to, like, for me, one of the most interesting parts of this segment, which is you have, like, two people who, while we're given their names, are not given, like, what their duties, job, qualifications are, but they're interviewed by the show and each one is arguing whether Cooper is alive or dead. <clears throat> and, and, and I, th- I believe I, one of them was like a survival expert. One of them was definitely totally a survival expert because he was so insistent that Cooper, you know, could survive. That really anyone could survive, provided you had long under underwear. Yes. Check. A cigarette lighter. Check. And a knife. I mean, if you have those, you can survive indefinitely out in the wilderness. Um, So, and and I I like the reenactments showing, like, 
you know, the other guy, he, he believes Cooper probably busted his leg and just died, but not before crawling to a stream and drinking some water. Uh-huh. And that was really amusing <laughs> to watch. The other the other scenario where Cooper survives and he's got he's made a little tent out of his uh, parachute and you know he's using a cigarette lighter to make a fire. Um, you know uh, that that was also immensely amusing. The, 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 these are probably for me some of the the, the best reenactments in the whole show. Um, our supplemental information that we get is that seven years later, a hunter discovers a placard from a 727 in that area. Mm-hmm. And not too long afterwards, uh, a family going on like a beach barbecue or camping trip or something, they find some uh, deteriorated cash along the Columbia River. Um, and those are really the last clues we have, except that... Um, <clears throat> There's uh, there's some speculation that Cooper was actually a guy named Richard McCoy who basically pulled off the same job, uh, like just five months after the initial hijacking, but this could just as well be a copycat. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, this McCoy guy, if he was Cooper, um, well, he escaped but was killed in the gun battle with the FBI. Um, the, the segment leaves us with a little bit of a uh, a uh, question mark, like because Florence is like you know saying that that composite wasn't accurate, which I guess if the composite drawing of Cooper is wildly inaccurate, because I have to admit the composite looks a lot like this Richard McCoy guy. It does. Yeah, yeah, it totally does. So I mean, if you believe the composite is accurate. Then you're like, yeah, that's D.B. Cooper. He tried it again, and he got killed. And it's another great moment in law enforcement history. Or if the composite is, you know, if you question the validity of it, you're like, well, you know, uh, that Cooper guy could still be out there, or at least his corpse. Um, and the, the update they give us at the end is also fairly ambiguous because all the update says is that the FBI has closed the case. So, you know, there's a huge, great big question mark out there about whether a guy in a business suit and sunglasses is still roaming the forest of the Pacific Northwest. Um, I just... Or he checked into a Howard Johnson's. Or he uh, checked into the Lake Merlin Howard Johnson's. Um... <laughs> I uh, read maybe not even two weeks ago, there was some news story that came up, some side item that was like new information in the D.B. Cooper case. I just, I feel like this is one of those legends that has, it's so big, it's, every time they say there's new information, it goes nowhere. (laughs) I mean, it's been 40 years over 40 years, right? Yeah. Since this happened, because this took place in the 70s. I mean, so this was already almost ancient history when Unsolved Mysteries decided to look into it. And it's, uh, I mean, it's uh, its a classic American mystery. I, I don't know what, how else to put it. I personally think that, um, given the location of where D.B. Cooper probably landed, he probably joined up with uh, the Yeti and has been <laughs> living among them ever since. I thought the Yeti were like a Himalayan 
Okay, the the Sam the Sass Sam Squanch. The Sam Squanches. <laughs> okay, I see I see why you chose to say, you say Yeti. Uh yes. <laughs> because I have trouble with the other word and you can, and I don't know what the plural of a Bigfoot is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um so your 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 suggestion is that like at the end of Harry and the Hendersons, um D.B. Cooper should have been one of the, uh, um, one of the, uh, shit, I, I guess I don't know what the, uh, the plural. Uh-huh, the, see, it's not yeah. easy. It's not easy doing this. <laughs> one, yeah, yeah. Um, gosh. Yeah, no, I, that, that, certainly some sort of, um, D.B. Cooper versus Sasquatch, uh, scenario is my preference. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if if not that I'm still open to the idea that he survived and you made it to a Howard Johnson's. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if like you know he had actually like survived and he traveled across country and he met the depressed main woman from the la- last episode. Uh-huh. And like had what if he like he turned out to be the romantic partner that she was looking for? I wish that's had, how this that that had ended. I wish that's how it ended for her. Anyway, I'm I'm. It's been a week, and I'm still so sad <laughs> about I'm that sorry. case. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what to say uh, about this case that hasn't been said. I mean, it it sort of um, existed in the zeitgeist well before we were became interested in these sorts of things. Um, another theory that I heard years ago, not about who D.B. Cooper actually is, but, uh, Rami, have you ever seen an episode of the show Mad Men? Oh, I was hoping you would bring this up. Please continue. (laughs) Um, so I, you know, I'm a huge Mad Men fan, but at the beginning, the opening sequence of, uh, Mad Men, there's sort of this mysterious businessman that is falling through the sky and past all these, it's animated. So they're falling past all these skyscrapers um in manhattan presumably but yeah oh yeah i love i love that opening it it perfectly sums up the experience of walking into work uh, (laughs) every morning well there was uh years before the show actually ended there was sort of a fun fan theory that was uh don draper ends up being db cooper and he has always been D.B. Cooper, and that's why we get this opening sequence that we do. Is is It's Don Draper, a.k.a. D.B. Cooper, falling um, from the sky. I, You know, spoiler, that's not how the show ends. It's been over for a couple years, you guys, so don't, don't at me about that. But yeah, <laughs> that was, that was, um... That was a fun theory for a couple of years, was that, like, the last few episodes of Mad Men were gonna be setting up Don Draper to, like... <laughs> start over with a new identity and and pull a heist on a plane you know they, they should just make a a, a completely separate db db cooper movie where john ham plays db cooper so that like madman fans who like that theory can just <laughs> that um it's this yep. this i'm sure it was i'm sure it wasn't fun for the flight attendants and the people that were directly involved with the incident when it happened, but to me, this is just such a, a fun, zany 
Mysterious oh yeah, yeah. Legend. I... Nobody, nobody ends up dying except for perhaps D.B. Cooper. Nobody gets hurt. Um, we also don't ever get to learn the name of the not through unsolved mysteries. I'm sure if we did a quick Google, we don't get to learn the name of the airline that he extorted, at least in right. the segment. Um, anyway. Well, you know, uh, yeah, like, um, no, I, I totally agree. This, this is a, um, this, this segment is just, I agree, it's so totally fun. It, it's a nice break from all these dead bodies that we've been coming across. Yeah. People wrongly imprisoned. Um, you know, it, totally. Oh, Delroy Lindo. Delroy Lindo is the FBI agent in Ransom. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so overall, I give this segment five five stacks. I totally agree. Uh, five stacks. What kind of personal ad do you think D.B. Cooper put in that paper that the main woman saw? Um, I, I, I'm thinking, I don't know, Robbie. I think, what kind of, uh, I'm what thinking kind of personal it's like, ad would he put in? I'm thinking something like, you know, male, 40 to 58, medium build, uh, entrepreneurial businessman, wishes to spend retirement with someone who can appreciate the finer things in life, (laughs) enjoys skydiving, wilderness, adventures, travel. Prefer someone not currently in law enforcement. Uh, I believe that we've, you know, we've already had a satanic panic or a cult panic episode, but we now have our first the marijuana panic. We panic, man. (laughs) Totally freaking Uh, out. Crystal, yeah. obviously, you know, you know me, and you know I'm not really someone who's ever part- partook in uh, marijuana. But like, watching this segment, did like, it make you want to get high? <laughs> and then like lay down, uh, parallel to a friend on some train tracks. Um, yeah, no. Th- well, this this was a very fascinating segment too. Like, I you know, it's a lot different from the other murders or mysterious death segments. Cause this basically we go, well to go back, uh, this is like August 23rd, 1987. And this train that's on its way to little rock, Arkansas, uh, comes across two bodies or people. Um, they're not, you know, but you know, two people who are motionless on the tracks, uh, laying a- a- across them in such a way that you would not want to do. And, uh, unfortunately, the train can't stop in time, and it runs them over. Uh, these were two young men, uh, Don Henry and Kevin o- Ives, if I recall correctly. Um, oh, okay, because I thought maybe maybe it was Don Henley, but now I'm realizing that had to be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, basically a a, uh, a high schooler from Arkansas and uh, you know one of the members of the Eagles were, were killed by a, a yeah, train. Super tragic. <laughs> um, 
And the the central theme to this segment is like is the conjecture that you know, I mean, if this was not a murder, then this was having to do with marijuana. Uh, the the segment actually says that in the initial investigation, it was determined that these two young uh, high schoolers smoke twenty marijuana cigarettes. They they um. They did twenty marijuanas, yeah. Which, um, I mean, you you told me that that that's like basically you know about as much as you know Willie Nelson could handle in an entire day if he was maxing out on on the stuff, right? Yeah. Also, guys, <laughs> this was in the nineteen eighties in <laughs> a small town in Arkansas. Where yeah. are they going to get that much weed? Really think about that. Where are they going to get it? No, that... that Robbie, I know that you never tried to score weed in high school, but I'm telling you, as a teenager in rural America, it's pretty hard to get that much pot. And especially, like, now? Totally, because it's legal all kinds of places. But yeah, uh, back then, no way. That That logistically is not possible. Okay, well, I, I didn't even look at it from that perspective. Um, you know, I, I, I do find that, and you know, I'm, I'm not trying to poke fun at, at Kevin Ives' father, but, I mean, he certainly has one of those um, in-denial parent uh, personas that we've seen so many times already. Mm-hmm. You know, where uh, he was quite adamant that his son definitely was not doing marijuana or any other sort of hard drug uh because and he's sure of this because he's because he had never seen him quote unquote spaced out monkey's out of the bottle man what yeah that's not even an expression pandora doesn't go back in the box he only comes out uh well you know yeah i um (laughs) yeah so uh, I, I don't want to poke fun at the guy, so we'll just leave it at that. Um, what we do, what conjecture we do have is that the night before the train incident, uh, the two teens had gone, uh, they'd gone to a quote-unquote favorite gathering place for teens. Um, and then after that, the two of them went spotlighting, which apparently is a, a form of hunting that involves flashing a... a a flashlight in the eyes of whatever prey you're hunting. Yeah, probably like raccoons and possum and deer. Yeah. And, yeah, so. and apparently this is illegal in the state of Arkansas. Yeah. So, and I noticed that Larry Ives didn't deny that his son engaged in that sort of illegal activity. Well, that's some that's some good hillbilly fun. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so... Um, when they, they went spotlighting, uh, and then at some point, they're, they're, the two of them were laying on the tracks of the uh, of this train with a green, light green tarp mm-hmm. uh, covering them. And this is just, I mean, this is such a weird segment because it's like, if they, were, if they did not run into foul play, how did they end up in this situation? Um uh, I mean, obviously, the twenty marijuana marijuana cigarettes is like so, you know it's giving you the idea that they're just so stoned that they just lay down on the train tracks. Um, but I guess subsequent 
subsequent a second autopsy reveals that between them they only had one to three marijuana cigarettes. That seems a little more reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's there's a brief hint that there's some sort of conspiracy going on because a, a PI that was hired by one or both of the families apparently met quote unquote resistance when he was trying to you know dig through the uh, truth here. Um. But, you know, it's, um, and there's, there's reference to, to a similar incident happening outside of, um, outside of the state, I think. Um, so, yeah, this is, um, uh, you know, uh, this is a very eerie sort of segment. Yeah, uh, it was in, it was in Oklahoma. That the, Oklahoma, that, that yeah. A similar incident had happened in 1984. Yeah. And we, we're not really left with any sort of um, justice was done conclusion because all we, all we know is that, uh, you know, a subsequent investigation determined that Don was uh, stabbed before he was killed by the train. Mm-hmm. So clearly there was a foul play component. Um uh you know our only clue uh, our only possible suspect is that there was a, a guy in military fatigues uh roaming around uh the area just like you know in the preceding week or so yeah um you know if this was foul play the killer has not been brought to justice up to this point so i i think this is really a very chilling case because to my knowledge to this day there's no resolution to this and um i mean if i had to use put my detective hat on i assume somebody was riding the rails in that you know oklahoma arkansas area they're very nearby and some kind of drifter just that's how he got his kicks because the case in Oklahoma was very similar. There were two two boys that were left on the train tracks. Um, I think of anything, this kind of doesn't make the original medical examiner look too good. No. Uh, how, how do you how do you how do you diagnose that someone had like twenty marijuana cigarettes? Well, uh, you would you would you would take a blood sample or a tissue sample and determine how much THC is in is in the tissue. Uh, so based on that level, you could determine how many pots they smoked. But <laughs> only an insane person or a person who didn't understand their job would say that they had smoked twenty. Like. You, you can't, <laughs> you would have to be sitting there and hitting it one after another after another. And considering that at the time that they, they came home, right? So they went to the, the team yeah. party place. I think it was Don, it was Don's house because it was Don's father that was speaking, right? Or was it the I, other guy? Do I have that backwards? Any, at any rate, one of the boys goes home. Uh, has a, has a lucid conversation with his father. Uh, tells tells his dad, "We're gonna, you know, I'm gonna grab my 22 rifle and we're gonna go out and do some spotlighting." Dad says, "Okay." Uh, 
so at that point, the dad can make, you know, the assessment if his kid's stoned or not. Um, so we're presuming that after midnight and before, what time in the morning was it? 3.30, 4 a.m.? When the train came? Yeah. Within the span of three hours, they had smoked 20 marijuana cigarettes. You're, you're saying that's just logistically not... <laughs> it is logistically It is logistically impossible that they had that much weed. It's logistically impossible that they could smoke that much weed. And furthermore, even if they'd only had a little weed, there is no situation in which I can imagine they wouldn't respond to the stimulus of a train company coming and get off the tracks. Because, you know, teenagers do stupid shit, right? They lay down on the train tracks. But the, at that point, they would have moved. There's no being too stoned and not... N- none of that adds up. So there's, uh, there's obviously foul play they found with uh one of the kids being stabbed i mean it's this is really spooky there's no explanation there's no reason for this no one's ever been charged it's still out there maybe man um gosh this is uh this is yeah i guess this is kind of unsettling if it's like some sort of railroad tracks killer yeah no it's really he could be anywhere you're right really. and, yeah and who knows the body count because like I, I presumably he didn't he, he didn't like just lay everyone out on tracks like this. So um, I guess if you live near a railroad, uh, beware. Yeah, stay sharp. Don't smoke all the don't smoke pots and hang out by the train tracks, kids. <laughs> Clearly not. Um, so yeah, overall because like because this was such an uh, a successfully unsettling segment. Uh, I'm gonna give it four stacks. Uh, yeah, I think I'm there with you. Wow. Okay. So yeah, should... it was it was a pretty good reenactment. Um, I was very convinced by the the chief engineer, the person who drives the train, the look of horror on their face when they realize they can't s- stop the train yeah. on time. I feel so sorry for those guys. Oh my god. Okay. Well, can I can I can I get personal for a second? Uh, okay, uh, I, I never realized you worked on a, worked on a railroad. <laughs> I, di- I, di- I don't, and I didn't. But um, uh, several years ago, my cousin in Kansas um, was in a car with her then-fiancé, who decided it was a good idea to try and outrun the train at a crossing. Oh, shit. And uh, the, the train hit the car, destroyed it. He lived, of course. She didn't. Um, and it's just, it's such a sad situation because to be the person in charge of this massive piece of machinery and to know that you can't stop what's about to happen, I I can't imagine living with that. That is my personal nightmare is to accidentally kill somebody in that way, either with a car. It's horrifying to me. So this was, this was like really, this was a tough one for me to get through, but it's, (laughs) but it's also like. I don't know. It kind of feels sort of pointless, too. Other than maybe there's some amateur sleuth out there that's trying to connect the dots between these murders and the one in Oklahoma. You know, maybe there's a bunch of similar cases. Maybe somebody's got a map out there where they're, you know, drawing out the route of, of similar things. This is a classic fraud case, and um, 
we get a lot of teasing from Robert Stack about I don't quite remember what he says, but it's to the Oh, we, we we know about like how Babe Ruth hit sixty home runs in nineteen twenty seven. His nineteen twenty seven uh ring is worth fifty thousand dollars. Mickey Mantle in nineteen fifty six broke some sort of record. Uh, I didn't know that. Pete Rose achieved more hits. I mean, if you're really into baseball, this is probably like going to be your favorite unsolved mystery segment. Yeah, it's it's well, it's pretty good. It's pretty good because uh, you get to learn a little bit about baseball. Uh, so we start. We basically start from the end and we work backwards in the segment, which is we know what the crime is that's been committed. Mm-hmm. Is that? Mickey Mantle's World Series uniform, Pete Rose's uniform, Babe Ruth's uniform, uh, several thousands of uh, very valuable trading cards, uh, all kinds of baseball memorabilia has has vanished into the ether. Um, But not because they've been stolen. In fact, we get a much more interesting story. That there, yeah. was a, there was a man named Dennis Walker um, who had a sports memorabilia collection worth about $10 million. Mm-hmm. And w- where Unsolved Mystery starts is that they allude to that this man, Dennis Walker, has had some kind of crime committed against him, that all of this has been stolen. <laughs> uh, yeah, they, 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 this, 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 this ep- segment really like... Uh, it zigs and know. it zags. Yeah, so so the real story is that Dennis Walker was a businessman that opened, uh, he had a investment firm that was based out of somewhere in Oregon. Did you say it was Medford? Was that it? Medford, Oregon. Medford, Oregon. They, and when... they got the Costco there, you know, there in uh... Medford. <laughs> Are you... What is that a reference from? I don't know. Is that not how they talk in Oregon? <laughs> I, I thought you were going for like a Fargo sort of... It was, but why not for <laughs> yeah. Oregon? Why okay. Not? Oh, no, 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 that's fine. That's fine. And and, 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 I, and I like that you, you say that because that does give me an opening to talk about my own personal experiences with Medford, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there was a summer where I worked for the Department of the Interior, and I, I was about an hour from Medford. And I had to get my car repaired because it broke down. So I had it towed into to Medford, and I was left to sort of spend the day in Medford until I uh, could get a um, a bus trip back to uh, where I was residing for that summer. And so they dropped the the dealership shuttle dropped me off at the uh, Medford Mall. Looked around in there, really wasn't anything particularly interesting, but. A coworker had clued me in to a place called Luigi's Italian Sandwiches, where you can order the world famous garbage grinder. What is on that sandwich? Okay, um, it has um, it had bacon, sal- salami, or is it pepperoni? One or the other. Ham, and we're talking like this was a, a significant amount of ham that was stuffed into the sandwich, like two two full like ham servings at a restaurant. 
Um, onions, tomatoes, green bell peppers, olives, uh, other stuff I can't remember. But the sucker was huge. There was like so much meat in the sandwich crystal. And it was like, honestly, I, I was surprised. Like the amount of meat for the, what I was paying, it kind of almost struck me that surely they were taking a loss on this sandwich. Wow. But yeah, no, Luigi's is great. If you're in Medford, Oregon, stop there, order the world famous garbage grinder. When you order it, the entire anyone who's in the uh, restaurant will like cheer or make this like, you know, ecstatic sound. Um, and when, and when I ordered, when I, when I finished eating there, I actually, um, I walked down several blocks on my way to the bus uh, station, and on the way there, I found the traveling um, promotional tour for the Portland Trailblazers. So I got a free Portland Trailblazers shirt, got to see some guy who played for them in the early 2000s. It was great. This was like, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that, like, I my car had broken down, this would have been the most perfect day ever. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Were you able uh, to visit David Walker's uh, baseball memorabilia museum that he constructed for his oh collection in Medford? I wish there? I had known about this sports memorabilia museum because, I, I mean, I, I can't imagine it, it still exists now. Maybe the exterior is still uh, in existence because I would totally check that out. Well, uh, so the story with Dennis Walker. Also, thank you for sharing. I like to hear about a good sandwich. That's yeah. A, that's a real passion of mine. Uh, so this episode brought to you by Luigi's Garbage Grinders in Medford, Oregon. God, I hope we get some free sandwiches Lu- out of this. Lu- Luigi's can definitely tweet at us. We'd love to hear from them. Uh, so, the, so the story with Dennis Walker is he... Um, was basically uh so he he opens a investment firm and he's promising something like 25 percent annual returns on people's investments um i think i think probably uh that is insane i don't know much about investing but that's (laughs) that's like made off levels of bullshit and um so he has this investment firm he opens a bank in tonga and so people are what's happening is people are giving him money to invest and what they're getting in return is basically a promissory note saying in a year's time uh you'll get your money plus 25 percent of that uh so a lot of people in medford gave gave over money to dennis he became very wealthy uh, with the investor's money, though, I don't actually know if the investors were aware of this, but he was buying up very valuable baseball mem- memorabilia. Uh, so he had, at one point, one of the most prized collections in the entire country, and then he opened his own sports hall of fame in Medford. Uh, Pete Rose actually came for the ribbon-cutting ce- ceremony. Uh, How unfortunate for Pete Rose that he has to be associated with this. Well, Not gonna help I think Pete Rose has been associated the... subsequently with much more shameful things. Right, right. I know, but you know, this certainly doesn't help his cause for getting back into the baseball hall, getting into the baseball hall of fame. Um, for the non-sports fans out there, just go ahead and Google Google that. Uh, okay, so. <laughs> 
So, uh, in 1986, Oregon prosecutes Walker for fraud um, and, and sues for fraud. Um, we get a nice little aside from one of the investors slash employees that had worked for Walker, basically saying that n there was no complaint that had been lodged against him. It was the lo that law enforcement had taken this upon themselves to start right. investing. So, so none, none of these investors were like, hey, I think something's fishy going on or David Walker's taken my money. Um, well, well, the first the first members of the Ponzi scheme were getting paid. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess because you know basically like the the subsequent suckers, you know, he was using some of that money to pay off the initial people uh, before eventually this ends up in some sort of you know sports card Jack Abramoff Ponzi situation, <laughs> or yeah, would have if yeah. law enforcement hadn't intervened. Right. So. Uh... So the so law enforcement is suing him for fraud. Walker files a countersuit. Um, David Walker, known to his employees, packs up uh, all of his sports memorabilia and takes off out of Oregon. I guess the plan was just to flee the country until everything blew over. Um, and uh, so Walker leaves at some point in 1986 and he's never heard from again. And he has, or had, all of that, uh, all of the collection, so. I, I like how, like, one, one of his employees, uh, Sandy Sanders, um, he, he helped him pack up the stuff. And he, for, from his mind, he was actually, like, it was, you know, he, he was thinking, like, oh, well, you know, this will keep the government from appropriating all this material and we'll be able to, like, you know, get the investors their money back. And, and it was also kind of strange, like, uh, you, you mentioned his personal assistant slash investor. She, like, she found, like, him accumulating all this sports stuff to be reassuring in a way as well. I guess, like, in her mind that, there, you know, there were actual assets, so it wasn't just like this money was just disappearing out of existence or something. Yeah, I mean, in that way, I guess it's, it, it was invested in something that had value. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> I, I know that, like, when I, you know, deposit money in a bank or give it to like some sort of investing figure i totally want them to go out and be buying comic books and sports cards you know the stuff that that's guaranteed to accumulate in value yeah, for sure maybe some vinyl records just to diversify your assets <laughs> well yeah yeah you gotta diversify because you don't <laughs> want to get into like one particular form of investment uh so did your version of the episode come with the update did you get the update yeah i got um I got sort of an update. I mean, uh, you saw that like 16 months after skipping town, yeah. his body was found in Vegas. Yeah. He had checked in under the name of Charles Lee and the cause of death was not determined. No, it wasn't. Did you get another update after that? Yeah. I got a very sad, like image of some of his sports memorabilia. And um, a little note that said that some of that of that memorabilia has come to light, but obviously it doesn't sound like much of and much of it was recovered. You know, somebody on one of these like uh, storage locker auction shows is really gonna have a find <laughs> at some point. 
I mean, I can't imagine that the stuff just disappeared. He had to have stashed it somewhere. Damn. So that's, a, you know, if you've got uh, Babe Ruth's World Series jersey, get at us. Yeah, yeah, please. Um, yeah, yeah, this, this, this was, a like, not a fun segment. I mean, but at least, you know, no other than the the other than Dennis Walker who apparently had a PhD in political science um That's uh, fun. yeah yeah I don't know if you caught that like before the investing job he was teaching political science and he quit that to become this con man who used this money to accumulate sports memorabilia um I don't remember anyone in our our, our political science department ever um ever voicing that as a possible career option no but we did um set up a shadow graduate student organization to funnel money from one club to another <laughs> oh Crystal, are we not supposed since to I... say that we're we not talking about that? um <laughs> since i was one of the people who, who on 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 paper <laughs> is associated with that uh, racket that's <laughs> so i'll just delete that part I, what's the statute uh, of limitations on uh defrauding a graduate student organization well this really, it really wasn't fraud i mean we didn't transfer money from one club to another we just used money from one club to uh pay for the catering uh, uh to host a speaker um, that, you know, the other club organization wouldn't, uh, didn't have any funds left to do, which, I mean, it doesn't, it's not like, you know, it's not like we took that money and went out and bought a, a bunch of baseball cards and <laughs> sports jerseys. <laughs> no, but uh, we, uh, we know, we knew what we were doing. <laughs> Uh, I guess my question would be, what's your favorite D.B. Cooper theory? Uh, or, or even if it's just in popular culture, because I know you, you already mentioned bad men, Don Draper. Mm-hmm. Personally, I like news radio's approach to this. Okay. Lay on they, had, they had a multi episode series arc where it was suggested that Jimmy James, the billionaire owner of their radio station, was db cooper that you know that's how he had accumulated his initial capital to build his empire but uh he's actually later um absolved uh or exonerated or whatever uh of this um because it turns out that he was just taking the rap uh for the real db cooper who was revealed to be adam west I like that one. Yeah, Adam and Adam West confessed in court, like he was just he was having a rough time during that period in his life and career, and so he hijacked an airline. Well, uh, I think on that note, we should probably wrap it up. Uh, so you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at ReenactedPod. We'd love to hear your favorite DB Cooper theory. Um, you can also hit yep. us up uh, on email. That's reenactedpod at gmail.com. 
and uh, Robbie, if you want to do the honors here. Yes. For every mystery, there is someone. Oh shit! I totally <laughs> messed it it's up. It's okay. <laughs> for okay, starting over. For every mystery, there is someone, somewhere, who knows the truth. Perhaps that someone is watching. Perhaps it's you.